Welcome back. Today we heard some of the most damning, stunning testimony we've heard to date, not only in the January 6 hearings, but frankly in American history. This testimony about what exactly former President Trump and those closest to him knew and did and on and before January 6. For those of you who are just tuning in, today 26-year-old Cassidy Hutchinson, a former top aide to former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, publicly testified on Capitol Hill. She says that Trump knew that some of his supporters had gathered in Washington, D.C. on the National Mall with weapons and body armor on January 6. He wanted security to remove screening checkpoints with magnetometers because he felt, quote, they're not here to hurt me. And then he wanted them, according to Hutchinson's testimony, to go to march on the U.S. Capitol, knowing many of them were armed. I want to bring in a member of the committee, Democratic Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy of Florida. Congresswoman, thanks for joining us. So your committee vice chair, Congresswoman Liz Cheney, says the committee has evidence of potential witness tampering from the Trump world. Uh, Cheney says the committee is considering, quote, next steps. Um, Does that include possible criminal referral for possible witness tampering or obstruction of Congress charges uh, against members of the Trump team? As you heard from the vice chair, we asked this question uh, of all of our witnesses, and we have gotten some troubling answers to the question of whether or not people have reached out to them to talk to them in ways that are inappropriate uh, as it relates to them being a witness for the committee. And the committee takes this very seriously. And so we need to have some further discussions as a committee. um, And um, that's pretty much where we are right now. And I don't want to get beyond that um, and get in front of the committee. So the committee had more than 20 hours of taped testimony from Cassidy Hutchinson. We we saw snippets of that in the preceding uh, um, hearings. Why did the committee feel it was important to have her testify in person in a public hearing today? Well, she had... um she also had a fourth hearing last or fourth um, deposition last week, and she has provided us with information that is cross-cutting uh, across the pressure campaigns that we saw and had laid out in the previous hearings. She also has a lot of information about what we are going to be um, showing the American people in the next couple of hearings. And so we thought it was a good moment to have her in and have her share with the American people what she had shared with us as a committee. Was it difficult to convince her to testify publicly? You know, I don't think it's easy for any of the folks who have decided to testify publicly because they understand that they will be the target of the former president's wrath. And you have heard in previous hearings what that means, how it can upend an ordinary citizen's life. And it's also difficult for people who were very much committed to the official work that the uh, former administration did. They were proud of the policy work that they did, but that when it came to participating in an effort to cheat to win, they were going to draw the line. So I don't think it's been easy for any of these witnesses knowing what might lay ahead for them. One of the most shocking parts of the testimony was Cassidy Hutchinson describing how Donald Trump wanted the people who were armed uh, on January 6th in the Capitol, uh, meaning in Washington, D.C., wanted them admitted into his rally, wanted the magnetometers put away so they could get in even though they had weapons, and then they were all going to march to the Capitol. Does that establish a criminal conspiracy by Donald Trump? I think what it is a piece of evidence or a fact pattern that basically shows that Trump and his aides understood that the January 6th protest could get violent. They understood the extent to which his supporters had arrived in Washington armed, and they and he called for them to go to the Capitol. I have to tell you, I was sitting there looking at the faces of Officer Hodges and Officer Dunn when that part of the testimony came out. And to see them understand that the White House knew that uh, these people were armed, that that they were getting reports that the Capitol Police wasn't didn't have enough people to stop these people, that the Capitol was getting breached. Watching them respond and react to that information was quite impactful. It was betrayal at the highest uh, levels. Yeah, I think Officer Gunnell uh, said afterwards that President Trump set them up. Um, and I know a lot of people who were at the Capitol that day 
journalists and politicians and staffers alike uh, can't believe that Donald Trump knew that there were individuals in the crowd who were armed and still sent them up to Capitol Hill. Yeah, and in fact, you heard in the hearing today, uh, Republicans who have since sought to whitewash what happened plead, put out um, public uh, videos, uh, make, uh, uh, do interviews where they were pleading for the president to do the right thing while they were under siege. And I guess in that moment, in the fog of war, they understood that the one man who could cause all of this to go away, that could save them too, as Republicans, um, as well as Democrats and all the folks that were on the Hill that day, they were calling for him to call these folks off. It's been quite disappointing to see that they have changed their tune in the year since, the year plus since. You're specifically talking about the Republican leader, Kevin McCarthy, who uh, was shown on today, in today's clips uh, on CBS, talking about how Donald Trump needed to call them off the mob. And also, it, it wasn't just the, Also, Congressman Gallagher uh, mm-hmm. uh, from Wisconsin, who also did that have you talked to them about it? Why, when they were so clear-eyed as to what was going on on January 6th, why have, especially McCarthy, backed off so much uh, on the clear and present danger that they were experiencing themselves as human beings in the Capitol that day? You know, it wasn't just my colleagues, um, Republican colleagues. It was also the Republican media. You saw Laura Ingram. You saw Tucker Carlson. You saw people who are spinning a completely total totally different narrative today um, on that day plead for the president to call off the crowd. And so I think it's really important that we ask the American people to set aside their partisan affiliations and with clear eyes listen to the evidence and the facts that we are laying out for them about what happened in the run-up to January 6th and what happened on January 6th, which was not a spontaneous riot, but rather an effort to overturn the free and fair election uh, by a uh, sitting president who knew there had not been fraud that had been committed and was running out of options and ways to unconstitutionally change the outcome. All right. Yeah, I think it was Hannity and Ingram, just to be, Hannity, just to be right, clear. Sorry. Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy, Democrat of Florida, thanks so much. A lot more to discuss from the hearing, including the implied threat Congresswoman Liz Cheney laid out at the end of today's hearing. Stay with us. We're back with our coverage of today's shocking testimony on Capitol Hill about Donald Trump and top aides, their actions on and around January 6th. Let's discuss. Jamie Gangel, let me start with you. So um, Vice Chairwoman Liz Cheney suggested that Trump's team has been pressuring witnesses. Take a listen. This is a call received by one of our witnesses. Quote, a person let me know you have your deposition tomorrow. He wants me to let you know he's thinking about you. He knows you're loyal and you're going to do the right thing when you go in for your deposition. So um, you, Jamie, talked to sources around the committee. How has that alleged intimidation, obstruction, how has that affected uh, the investigation? Jake, I just want you to know, I know you're loyal to me, and I'm going to be. I mean, I this am. is this is so transparent on on Trump's part. This has been a big concern for the committee for months now. In fact, I I've spoken to Vice Chair Cheney about it. This is witness tampering, plain and simple, and I think we're going to see more about it as the hearings go on. So. I grew up in Philly and, you know, I've covered, I've I've not covered, I've followed a lot of mob trials. And one thing you hear is nobody ever says, don't testify or we'll kill you, Mm -hmm. right? They're like, they say things like that. We know you're loyal. We know you're going to do the right thing, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But what's a crime and what's not a crime in terms of that kind of suggestion or intimidation? So it's an, you know, in this case, it's these particular examples are an implied threat And I think part of what the committee might be doing in this circumstance is they know of these particular instances that they put out publicly 
And I think they want to know if other witnesses who have come before them have experienced these same things. So part of what I think they're doing is they're communicating, hey, we know that some of our witnesses are being threatened um, and they want more people to come forward because what would help them, I think, make their decision about whether to refer this to the Justice Department um, for potential prosecution for witness tampering is if this is a concerted effort, if they have multiple instances of it, the committee knows who's sending those notes to their witnesses. They're just not revealing that publicly. So um, Cassidy Hutchinson testified today that White House counsel Pat Cipollone, a very loyal Trump official at the Trump White House, said this to her on the morning of January 6th about not letting Trump go to the Capitol after the rally. Take a listen. Mr. Cipollone said something to the effect of, please make sure we don't go up to the Capitol, Cassidy. Keep in touch with me. We're going to get charged with every crime imaginable if we make that movement happen. And do you remember which crimes Mr. Cipollone was concerned with? In the days leading up to the six, we had conversations about potentially obstructing justice or defrauding the electoral count. So let me ask you. As a legal matter, well, first of all, the great advice by Pat Cipollone. I mean, well, those are words no White House counsel ever wants to have to say. I mean, that is the worst possible scenario for a White House. We're going to be charged with crimes. Is we are going to be charged with every crime imaginable, according to Cassidy Hutchinson. But I guess my question is, does it matter on a legal level whether or not Trump was inciting the crowd on Capitol Hill and he was present? or whether he had just done all the work and they were running to the Capitol anyway. Well, it clearly mattered to Pat Cipollone. So in his assessment, he knew sort of all the facts that were going on at the time. And so he obviously underwent some kind of legal analysis within the White House. What I'm presuming is he they did a legal analysis within the White House counsel's office. And there was something about going up to the Capitol physically that made him and his judgment think that that would um, have then the former president be specifically participating in the obstruction of Congress um, or in inciting the riot. So they knew violence was coming. They knew a riot was most likely about to occur. And in his judgment, had the president been there physically, that would have made a distinction. I think an argument can be made that even without that physical presence, um, the president, the former president has culpability. So we keep hearing throughout this uh, hearing, throughout the investigation, that Pat Cipollone in the White House counsel's office was advising them to do the right thing day in, day out, that they thought the nonsense about the election fraud should be dropped, that they thought that Trump shouldn't go. They were going to be to the Capitol. They were going to be charged with a crime. Why won't they come forward? Specifically, why won't Pat Cipollone come forward? So my understanding from sources on the committee is that for months, Cipollone, Philbin, they have been cooperating. They have been helpful in an informal way. And I think the committee thought, just the way Bill Barr, the former attorney general, came forward, that they would come forward. Pat Cipollone and Pat Philbin clearly do not want to come forward. I think what was so striking today was not only did you have the quote about every crime imaginable, but you have Pat Cipollone on January 6th running into Mark Meadows' office saying something needs to be done or the blood is going to be on your effing hands. Yeah, but why, is, why does Cipollone think the blood isn't on his hands, too? And he, why, is, why is this 26-year-old former aide braver than him? Anyway, we have to go. Jamie Gengel, Kerry Cordero, thanks so much. Former President Trump is now weighing in on today's explosive testimony from Cassidy Hutchinson. How his statement contradicts what we heard and know about the former aide who worked just down the hall from Trump's Oval Office. And we're back in our politics lead. Former President Donald Trump is now responding to the explosive testimony of his former White House staffer, Cassidy Hutchinson. Aides to Donald Trump tell CNN that they were left speechless amid the torrent of revelations from Hutchinson and the January 6th committee today with one Trump advisor calling her testimony a bombshell. CNN's Caitlin Collins joins us live with more on this. Caitlin, uh, what are you hearing from folks familiar with Donald Trump's inner circle about today's hearing? 
Well, a lot of people have said, you know, a lot of what she said today, Cassidy Hutchinson testified to today, sounds like Trump, his anger over the election and how he responded in those days. We should note that he himself is disputing Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony, calling it phony, implying that she was a leaker and wanted a job at Mar-a-Lago after he left office, and often relying on something that you've seen Trump use in the past when someone speaks out negatively against him, Jake, which is that he hardly knew her, is what he is saying today as she was testifying, actually in real time, even though she was a top aide to his chief of staff and often on Air Force One and at many events with him, as you can see in a lot of video and photos from his time in office. And we should note, Jake, that even before Cassidy Hutchinson came and testified today, that some of those who worked with her in the West Wing in Trump's White House had warned that they were going to downplay her testimony. Trump world is going to push back on her testimony and dismiss her as a low-level staffer. She was anything but. She was a senior advisor to the chief of staff. She was a senior advisor for legislative affairs, and she was a special assistant to the president. She was so plugged in that I would often go to her as the White House communications director to get intel on the president's schedules, his movements, things we were considering as far as events. She's also on a first-name basis with most members of congressional leadership. She would text with them. So she's seen everything. I should note, Jake, that it's not just people downplaying her, you know, with no name attributed to the statements. There are some people on the record praising Cassidy Hutchinson who worked there. One of them was a deputy to Kaylee McEnany in the press office praising uh, praising her bravery for coming forward and testifying today like she did. But I do think it raises the question when you see Trump's response is whether or not this weighs on other people who are potentially considering coming forward and speaking with the committee. Because one thing that Liz Cheney, the vice chairwoman of the committee, brought up at the end is witness tampering. She says that they have evidence from unnamed officials that there has been a level of witness tampering as this investigation has gone on, where people who are still firmly in Trump's orbit have reached out to those who have gone before the committee and said, Trump knows you're loyal, continue to be a team player so you can stay in good graces, and says that he is thinking about you. Those are messages that have been relayed, apparently, from former President Trump to people who have spoken to the committee, according to Liz Cheney. All right. Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. Coming up next, the whirlwind of legal action states are taking not even a week after Roe versus Wade was overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm going to talk to one state's governor about why she felt she needed to act quickly. Stay with us. We will have more on today's striking testimony on Capitol Hill in just moments, but there are major developments in our national lead. Some abortion procedures can resume in Texas, a state court issued a temporary restraining order against some local and state officials that will stop them from enforcing Texas's abortion ban. This would allow the procedures to resume until the state's so-called trigger law goes into, an effect, goes into effect in a few weeks. CNN's Erica Hill is tracking the changes happening in Texas and around the country in response to the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. Abortion rights supporters in Florida rallying against that state's 15-week abortion ban set to take effect on Friday. This will represent uh, the most significant protections for life that have been enacted in this state in a generation. Planned Parenthood and the ACLU suing to block that new law, which has no exception for rape or incest. Florida is one of more than a dozen states where bans or severe restrictions are likely to go into effect soon. Trigger laws in Louisiana and Utah now on hold, but in these 10 states, bans are already on the books. Harris County, Texas, seeing a temporary reprieve after a restraining order issued Tuesday allowed some clinics to resume abortions until the six-week mark. Ohio's six-week ban was in place just hours after Friday's Supreme Court ruling was announced. This decision returns abortion policy to the place it has always belonged, to the elected policy branches of government. The city council will vote Wednesday on changes to their health plan, allowing city employees and their families to be covered for elective abortions. We'll also include other basic medical needs, including birth control and vitro fertilization, transgender care, and other family health care needs if those treatments become unavailable in Ohio. California also acting quickly in the wake of Roe being overturned. I just signed an executive order that solidifies California's status as a reproductive safe haven for women. 
An amendment will now be on the ballot in November to formalize the right to abortion under the state constitution. The governor also signing an order banning state agencies from sharing patients' reproductive health care information with other states, as concern grows about how some states may use that information to prosecute providers or patients. So there's a big legal battle coming. We're going to see, I believe, a spate of lawsuits with DOJ trying to strike down state laws that reach into other states. Nearly two dozen attorneys general have pledged to support and even expand access to abortion care in their states and Washington, D.C., as the legal battles intensify. Jake, separately, CVS and Rite Aid have announced that they're limiting sales of emergency contraception, such as Plan B, to three per customer. Those pills are intended to reduce the chance of pregnancy after sex. CVS telling CNN that while it does have half supply right now, its goal is to make sure there is equitable access and consistent supply of those drugs. Jake? All right, Erica Hill, thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss... Uh, is the Democratic governor of New Mexico, Michelle Lujan Grisham. Uh, Governor, thanks so much for joining us. So in the wake of the Supreme Court's decision, you signed an executive order in New Mexico. You are offering protections for any women or girls who travel to your state to get an abortion and for doctors who perform them there. Minnesota and Massachusetts have taken similar actions. What do you think would be the next step? Do you think that states that have bans, that pass laws, um, prohibiting women or girls from from traveling to other states will sue New Mexico? Where does this lead, do you think? Well, that's the question, right? We don't know where it leads, but we don't want anything that's going to limit access or having a chilling effect on uh, provider safety or safe harbor. Uh, You can't say that you're a state, and we are, that guarantees safe legal access to reproductive support, abortion and abortion care services if providers uh, feel like they don't have uh, the protections that they're going to need, particularly since lots of providers, lots of healthcare insurance companies or multi-state. And now that the U.S. Supreme Court has basically said that we are inviting states to rewrite the U.S. Constitution in any way they want, they're now also free, like Texas, to persecute providers and women who seek to uh, access reproductive services in other states. So we're being uh, proactive and making it clear that this is a reproductive safe haven state. So how are clinics in New Mexico doing? Are doctors and nurses in New Mexico nervous to perform the procedure? Are they nervous to perform abortions, uh, given uh, that there are other states uh, that are criminalizing the process? I can think I can reference it in uh, another way, which is we uh, eliminated an antiquated New Mexico unconstitutional ban on abortion that criminalized providers. And while it was never utilized, uh, providers were, in fact, nervous about it, uh, could see sort of the tipping point at the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, and were very clear that that needed to be removed from our statutory framework, which we did uh, about a year ago. So it is clear to me that it is there are too many unknowns, and losing this Supreme Court constitutional right by the actions of the Supreme Court, you bet folks are feeling uneasy, and you bet that the fact that states are saying, look, we're inviting, right, tell on your neighbor policies, we will hold women accountable. Uh, this is something that most states, I hope, will consider protecting the folks that provide health care services uh, to their residents and to folks who legally are seeking abortion in our state. The, um, the polls indicate that a majority of the American people disagree with the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. But the polls also indicate that the American people as a whole do support some restrictions on abortion. What is the law in New Mexico? Are there any restrictions? There are no restrictions, uh, given that we interpret, and I agree that the, uh, again, pre this new Supreme Court decision, but Roe v. Wade is that this is a privacy right and a personal decision between uh, Uh, a woman and her doctor. And to interfere in any of these medical decisions uh, creates, and it has, right, 
unknown untold reductions in civil liberties for any number of individuals, including women's access to contraceptives and other uh, 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 safe sex protections like the morning after pillar plan B. Um, here, we would love to do as much as we can to focus on maternal health and prenatal health to make sure that we have fewer and fewer and fewer and eliminate all unwanted pregnancies. However, in these late-term abortion issues, these are women who have picked a name, have enrolled in childcare, who have a nursery, the kind of medical issues and deeply private personal traumas that are occurring in those um, aspects. I don't believe government has any right to interfere and judge those decisions when two medical providers are providing that information directly to their patient. But we are also a state that would like to do more to prevent unwanted pregnancies and to prevent the kind of violence that can result in a pregnancy. And those are things I'd like to see, not just New Mexico, but the American people focus on in the same context as protecting our civil rights. New Mexico Democratic Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham, thank you so much for your time today. Up next, I'm going to speak to somebody who worked closely with the January 6th committee, plus the legal predicament today's testimony now poses for those who worked in Trump's White House. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, a cry for help leads to the discovery of dozens of dead and dying migrants in the back of a tractor trailer in Texas. At least 51 have passed away as we learn more about the truck. Plus, a woman whose sister died because she could not access an abortion in a place where abortion has been banned for 30 years. Poland provides a glimpse of the new reality for millions of American women and girls. And leading this hour, jaw-dropping testimony before the January 6th Select Committee from Cassidy Hutchinson, the former aide to Donald Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows. Hutchinson detailed how then-President Trump wanted the magnetometers removed from his rally at the Ellipse so his armed supporters could attend his speech before urging them to march to the Capitol. She also recounted being told about a dramatic and physical scene inside the presidential limo after Trump's speech, Trump reportedly lunging at his Secret Service agent and trying to take the wheel to drive himself to the Capitol, something Hutchinson says the White House counsel, Pat Cipollini, warned would result in the White House getting charged with every crime, quote, imaginable. Today, Trump denied trying to grab the steering wheel of the limousine. As CNN's Pamela Brown reports for us now, Cassidy Hutchinson gave damning testimony about her immediate boss, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, and his refusal to intervene in the events of January 6th. As an American, I was disgusted. Bombshell testimony from surprise witness Cassidy Hutchinson, a former top aide to White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. I overheard the president say something to the effect of, you know, I, I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. Hutchinson describing how Trump allegedly directed White House staff to remove the metal detectors around the ellipse because he was upset the crowd didn't look big enough. Hutchinson testifying that lead White House counsel Pat Cipollone warned about legal exposure if Trump followed his supporters to the Capitol. We're going to get charged with every crime imaginable if we make that movement happen. And do you remember which crimes... Mr. Cipollone was concerned with? In the days leading up to the six, we had conversations about potentially obstructing justice or defrauding the electoral account. Hutchinson relaying a secondhand account about a defiant Trump who wanted to go to the Capitol anyway, allegedly even attacking the leader of a Secret Service detail while in the presidential motorcade. I'm the effing president. Take me up to the Capitol now. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel. Hutchinson telling the committee White House officials knew something big was brewing on January 6th, testifying that Trump's former attorney, Rudy Giuliani, told her. We're going to the Capitol. It's going to be great. The 
president's going to be there. He's going to look powerful. And when she approached Meadows for more details, she says Meadows gave an ominous response. He didn't look up from his phone and said something to the effect of, there's a lot going on, Cass, but I don't know. Things might get real, real bad on January 6th. <laughs> After things did get real bad at the Capitol, Cipollone pleaded with Meadows to get Trump to do something to stop it, according to Hutchinson. And Pat said something to the effect of, and very clearly had said this to Mark, something to the effect of, Mark, something needs to be done or people are going to die and the blood's going to be on your effing hands. This is getting out of control. Hutchinson testified that watching the violence and destruction unfold on January 6th was devastating. It was unpatriotic. It was un-American. We were watching the Capitol building get defaced over a lie. It's something that I, it's still, I still struggled to work through the emotions of that. And another revelation coming out during that hearing was that her former boss, she said, Mark Meadows, asked for a presidential pardon relating to January 6th. Now, former President Trump or his party has taken to Truth Social and denied some of the most shocking allegations from today, including uh, that he allegedly lunged at the wheel. But I will note that Cassidy Hutchinson was under oath when she told that story, and she made clear that this was an account coming directly from Tony Ornato, who was actually there. We have reached out to the Secret Service. Still no comment. Jake? Pamela Brown on Capitol Hill for us. Thanks so much. Joining us live to discuss John Wood, former senior investigator for the January 6th committee and a former U.S. attorney under George W. Bush. He also clerked for Justice Clarence Thomas. Uh, Mr. Wood, thanks so much for joining us. So we learned so much today. Uh, were you surprised by this last minute hearing and what effect do you think this witness had? I was a little bit surprised. Obviously, since I just left the select committee last week, I was well aware uh, that the committee had been talking to Cassidy Hutchison several times. Uh, but I thought that some of this uh, new information that came out today was just eye-popping. I would have to think that for anybody who is sort of open-minded and on the fence about what happened on January 6th, that her testimony will convey to the American people just how uh, dangerous the president's conduct was and the danger it posed to our democracy as well as to the people who are in the Capitol at the time. And I just want to, again, reiterate for anybody watching, you were a U.S. attorney in Missouri during George W. Bush's administration. Uh, you were chief counsel for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Uh, you uh, clerked for Clarence Thomas. You're a conservative Republican. I am. At the end of today's hearing, uh, Vice Chair Liz Cheney highlighted what she called a concerning trend of witnesses describing intimidation from members of Trump's orbit. Take a listen. This is a call received by one of our witnesses. Quote, a person let me know you have your deposition tomorrow. He wants me to let you know he's thinking about you. He knows you're loyal and you're going to do the right thing when you go in for your deposition. How big of a problem has this been for the committee when it comes to interviewing witnesses? Well, it's not impeding the investigation because the vast majority of the witnesses, whether they were subpoenaed or asked to come voluntarily, have cooperated and appeared to be very truthful. But there have been some witnesses who have been less than forthcoming with the committee. And uh, the evidence that came out today suggested that it's at least possible that that was at the request of the president. And so I think that was one of the really big things that came out of today's hearing is this evidence suggesting that President Trump may be attempting to tamper with witnesses. And Vice Chair Cheney didn't say anything explicit about a criminal referral uh, for witness tampering, but she certainly hinted that that was something the select committee was going to consider. And it sounds like they're going to consider it in the coming days. One of the things that was so shocking today, I think the most shocking thing, uh, other than the story, which was kind of hearsay uh, about what would happen in the limo that was according to a story she had heard from a Secret Service agent, but she didn't witness it herself, was the story from in the tent uh, on the ellipse on the rally right before the rally January 6th where, where Donald Trump, uh, in a conversation she heard, uh, wanted the magnetometers removed uh, because he wanted even those with, with weapons to be allowed to hear him speak because he didn't think that those individuals posed any threat to him. And then uh, also talked about how he wanted that group, which included armed individuals, to march to the Capitol uh, to stop the counting of the electoral votes. Is that a crime, do you think? Well, 
I, I don't want to reach a conclusion based just on one witness's testimony, but it certainly suggests that there's enough there that the Justice Department can at least investigate whether the president committed a crime. They'll need to talk to multiple witnesses and get more evidence before they can reach a conclusion, but it suggests that they need to at least look into the issue. And I agree that I thought that that evidence was extremely compelling, even shocking, that the president knew there were people who were armed. He wasn't concerned about it because he didn't think they were coming after him, but he wanted them to go to the Capitol. Not just that he didn't stop them from going to the Capitol when they were armed, but that he actually wanted them to go to the Capitol. That's really just frightening. Well, and it also puts in new light uh, all the language we heard from the podium uh, that day. Trial by combat, Rudy Giuliani said, etc. If Rudy Giuliani knew uh, that some of those people in the crowd, whether right near him or in the expansive crowd, were armed, uh, that certainly puts his speech in new light. We also uh, learned that um, Cassidy Hutchinson has had to uh, hire security or or there's security protecting her. Are you worried about her safety? Uh, Of course. Uh, I I think that she was incredibly brave to go before a national or even international audience and speak the truth about what happened. Uh, She's a young person. I know she had a lot of responsibility in the White House, but she's still very young, so it had to have been frightening. And, you know, I I think the vast majority of Trump supporters are peaceful people, but you have to be worried about one crazy person being out there. And so it's it's really frightening. And I I haven't gotten the sense that there's anything that President Trump has done to try and tamp down the risk of violence uh, to the To the contrary, he seems to be just pouring gasoline on the fire. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say that was quite an understatement. But John Wood, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Uh, Joining us now live to discuss former U.S. attorney and CNN senior legal analyst uh, Preet uh, Bharara, uh, who was appointed during a Democratic administration, uh, I should note, just in contrast uh, to Mr. Wood. Um, So uh, Preet, uh, Cassidy Hutchinson testified that Rudy Giuliani and Mark Meadows were among those uh, who inquired about getting pardons for their actions related to January 6th. Is that legally significant? Yeah, absolutely. There's a doctrine that prosecutors refer to called consciousness of guilt. It often refers to activities that someone engages in when they're being pursued by the police. Um, But it it, it certainly obtains in this context as well. It's not dispositive. It doesn't give you a slam dunk case. But it tells you that people like Giuliani and others were sufficiently concerned that that they would be charged with a crime based on things that they had done, that they preemptively sought blanket pardons. It's, It's especially extreme, uh, given that they were seeking something in advance of being charged, in advance of really even investigation that that they knew about being launched, uh, and a blanket, broad-based pardon, which is almost unprecedented, not completely unprecedented, but almost unprecedented, and certainly unprecedented for someone at their level. Uh, Let's focus on Mark Meadows for one second, the then White House Chief of Staff. What jumps out at you that could potentially be a legal liability for Mark Meadows, based on what we heard today from Cassidy Hutchinson? Well, you know, so, so Cassidy was, a, I think, a very compelling witness, very strong witness. She wasn't tested by cross-examination, but she was very calm. Uh, her demeanor is the thing that I think people will look to to see if she was credible, and I think she was very credible. And she was very particular in describing three categories of people, the people who were trying to get Donald Trump to stop doing what they were doing, the people who were sort of neutral, and the people who were deflecting blame. And it sounded like she was saying a little bit enabling of Donald Trump's conduct uh, on the 6th, leading up to the 6th, and immediately after the 6th. So to the extent that there was testimony she gave about Mark Meadows being sort of in cahoots with this idea of of going to the Capitol, even after knowing that law enforcement had been overrun, even after knowing that the lawyers at the White House Counsel's Office were suggesting criminal exposure, even even after knowing that people in the crowd were armed and had body armor, things that we can now attribute to Donald Trump's mind and also to Mark Meadows, I'm not saying there's definitely a criminal case, but you're inching closer toward it. There was another really interesting moment in today's hearing when Cassidy Hutchinson was describing a conversation she had with White House counsel Pat Cipollone, uh, where Cipollone was really was urging her to not let Donald Trump go from the ellipse to Capitol Hill on January 6th. Take a listen. Mr. Cipollone said something to the effect of, please make sure we don't go up to the Capitol, Cassidy. Keep in touch with me. We're going to get charged with every crime imaginable if we make that movement happen. And do you remember which crimes Mr. Cipollone was concerned with? In the days leading up to the six, we had conversations about potentially obstructing justice or defrauding the electoral count. 
So we're going to get charged with every crime imaginable if Trump goes, but he didn't ultimately go. Does that mean that the case against Donald Trump or his team on those matters is weaker? Yeah, look, any attempted crime is easier, is, is harder to prove than a completed you know, crime. If you plan uh, a burglary or a robbery of the bank uh, and you don't complete it, People can always argue, well, it was just, you know, a figment of my imagination. It was just hypothetical. It was a fantasy. It wasn't real. So attempts are always harder to prove just as a general matter than completed crimes. But it tells you a lot about Donald Trump's state of mind. As you pointed out earlier, it was not only the case that he wanted to go. uh, He basically had to be physically restrained from taking his own presidential vehicle, the Beast, over to the Capitol and engaged in, you know, what what sounds like near assault of a, secu- of, a, of a Secret Service agent in his car and almost grabbed the wheel. Um, and by the way, that's not the only time that we've heard in the last number of days that someone in the White House counsel's office talked about criminal exposure. We have the example of another White House counsel lawyer who was talking to John Eastman and saying, you need to get yourself an effing criminal defense lawyer, a really good criminal defense lawyer. So all over the place, Donald Trump, John Eastman, and others were being told not only about the potential for violence, but also new actual violence was taking place. People were armed and were being told by their own handpicked lawyers again and again about criminal exposure. So I think that's significant. Yeah, I think it wasn't the beast itself. I think it was actually the uh, SUV version of the beast, the suburban, but that's all presidential vehicle oh, all right. lingo. The anyway, <laughs> former U.S. Attorney Pre Perara, thanks so much. After today's testimony, a former Trump insider says he expects the public to hear from the former chief of staff. That's next. And we're back with our politics lead, a blockbuster sixth hearing from the January 6th House Select Committee. Cassidy Hutchinson, a former aide to White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, testified that former President Trump and his inner circle were well aware that the crowd was armed and aware that they planned to walk to the Capitol. And yet, not only did little to stop it, encouraged it. Let's discuss. Gloria, um, we can't overstate the risk to her life and livelihood that Cassidy Hutchinson uh, took today. Enough so that a source tells CNN she's gotten private security yeah. uh, in recent days. How do you see her courage compared to some of the other members of her party? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's an easy question. I think she's a courageous young woman, 26 years old, um, clearly puts her life in danger. Um, she's got to leave uh, the environs of the, of the Trump circle, right? She is. Um, and I think that other older, more experienced people, oh, Pat Cipollone comes to mind, might be looking at what she did today and say, you know, this is a woman um, that's going to be remembered in history, I think, for doing the right thing at the right time. And I'm sure it was so difficult for her. I mean, don't forget, she's worked in Republican politics. She worked for Steve Scalise. She worked for Ted Cruz. She worked for Mark Meadows, both on the Hill and at the and at the White House. And um, She's going to be ostracized by those people who think she should have kept these terrible secrets about Donald Trump's behavior and what he was doing on January 6th and how he didn't care that the mob, uh, members of of the mob were armed. Um, And she told us that Mark Meadows, her former boss, asked for a pardon, as did Rudy Giuliani. So this is a a woman of of great courage. Yeah, she brought a lot of new facts to light. Tim Miller's with us right now. We should note your new book (laughs) is out today, Why We Did It, a travelogue from the Republican road to hell. Uh, So on that subject, uh, Tim, the House Judiciary Committee's Republicans' official Twitter account tweeted this as the hearing went into its first recess. Quote, that was their star witness? Okay, then. And the tweet has the crying, laughing emoji. And in addition, former President Trump posted on his social media platform that, quote, I hardly know Hutchinson. He also called her phony. Um, what will the Republican campaign to discredit her do? And, and will, it, will it work, do you think? Ah, depends on what you mean by work, right? I, I think it certainly is going to be... Keeping Republicans in the fold, keeping yeah, their supporters in the fold. For sure. I think if that's the definition, I, I think absolutely they'll keep supporters in the fold. And look, this is what I, I tried to figure out when I was writing this book, which is why it's so relevant to today, which is like, why did people who know better continue to go along with this stuff? And I, and I consider most of the people on the Hill to, to be part of that. Probably the, whoever's running that House Judiciary Committee tri- Twitter feed. These people know it, but the they've 12-year-old decided, who's yeah, running Yeah, the 12-year-old's running the feed, but they've decided that the game... 
and staying within their social circle and owning the libs is more important than doing the right thing for the country. And, and, and the reason why they can get away with that is because that's what Republican voters want. This is all a demand side problem. Republican voters you know, want to you know, have their grievances and biases reinforced. As long as the politicians are giving it to them, they're going to be rewarded. And so, it's, so they've, they've created these rationalizations in their head for why they don't have to do the right thing. And, and Cassidy, I thought today, was really brave. And, and I think it just speaks to how powerful it was that she was able to kind of break free from all those rationalizations when you all had all these grown yeah. ASS men and right. women. You can who say were, ass. Yeah. <laughs> and we had all these grown-ups in Washington who I didn't. I said the F word earlier, so uh, you can say uh, ass. Okay. 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 tables. Right. <laughs> yeah, okay. I, was I don't know what the rules are over here. Well, I was, you know. I was quoting. The, if, if, it's in a, if it's in a, well, we'll talk about the rules. <laughs> so, um, so that's, you know, that's a, a guy who used to be a top aide for well, many we were Republican just talking. politicians. We have been working together for years, yeah. and we first encountered each other. So we saw, but we saw uh, in the testimony today, Kevin McCarthy, Mike Gallagher, a number of House Republicans who have since completely fallen back in line. Oh yes, they um, have. Talking uh, on that day about how upset they were. Um, you were on Capitol Hill that day. I was. Uh, and I mean, ultimately, what Cassidy Hutchinson said today is that Donald Trump sent. Arm, knowing that they were armed, sent them to Capitol Hill. He sent Hill. his own army, militia, up to Capitol Hill to do his bidding. I mean, can you imagine? We didn't know at the time, and in fact, for years, months now, Republicans have insisted that there were no weapons in the crowd, and this was one of the reasons why this was not a problem, that we should not have all have been as worried or as scared or as traumatized by what happened. But imagine if Kevin McCarthy, Mike Gallagher, and the others who we, we did hear from in the moment knew that actually the police had spotted several people in that crowd with weapons ranging from pistols to AR-15s, right? And now, you know, as someone, and I'm processing this as both a reporter who was, who was there observing and reporting on what was going on with our democracy, but also as a person who spent, you know, a decade working at the Capitol and who was having, you know, my workplace attacked. And now, as a citizen, I'm learning that the President of the United States, who's supposed to be the President of all of us, actually sent knowingly sent and encouraged an armed mob to go and attack whoever was at the Capitol complex. And they were looking specifically for people like Mike Pence and Nancy Pelosi, but those guns were coming for all of us. But he said that they weren't stunning. coming for him, right. so he that didn't matter. They, didn't they were on him. his right. side. And by the way, there are still a ton of questions, and I'm interested to see if the committee digs into this, as to why then the Defense Department was so slow to dispatch the National Guard. Was right. that because the president knew, like, the guys with the guns that were on his side were already there and he didn't need any extra guns that were going to get rid of them? Who Lots knows? of questions. Right. Um, Ashley, one of the most stunning stories we heard today was actually a, a hearsay story. It was a story uh, that Cassidy Hutchinson said she'd been told by somebody uh, in the president's Secret Service detail. Uh, let's, let's roll that. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president, take me up to the Capitol now. To which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel and when Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles. Now, to be clear, we do not have any corroborating evidence from that story. And both in the Secret Service agents testified before the committee. But I don't know if they were asked about that story or if they have a co- contradiction about it. Although uh, Jamie Raskin, Congressman Raskin, said that they haven't heard anything um, contradictory about it. Uh, but still, a very stunning image. And, and uh, I think it, it was Jeffrey Tubin who noted that if somebody had told you 15 minutes before the hearing that we would hear this scene, you would say, come on, that's, that's not going to happen. Yeah, and then 15 minutes after, you say, I bet Donald Trump would do something like that, actually, because it was, I mean, I, I gasped out loud when I heard her describe it, but he was so erratic that day. To know, to say, if you've ever worked a presidential event, take down the mags? Like, that is protocol 101. <laughs> right. you, yeah. you don't go into a presidential event without magnetometers. Remember, the guns coming into this event, we're not going to... We're not for him, though. His people, his people. And there was a hole, and it looked bad. But to think 
It, right. All, harken back to the inauguration. All about crowd optics, not about people and the republic and protecting our democracy. To think that he knew that there were people in trees with AR-15s outside of the perimeter, the fact that they could even stay there so that they could go to the... It, it is beyond it's me. It's illegal in the District it's, of Columbia. Yes. Let's be clear. Yeah. Just so, straight up illegal. Tim, I want to give you the last word here because yep. you have worked for a number of Republican officials. Jeb Bush is when... I think that's when I met you, when you were working for Jeb Bush and others, um, who are clearly not on Team Trump, but also they're not out there issuing statements about this. Um, they're not out there condemning it. I mean, I, I, I'm sure Jeb Bush is somewhere saying, I can't believe this is the most hideous thing I've ever heard. But he's not... I mean, no, maybe he thinks yeah. he's a private citizen. He doesn't need to. Yeah. But... but what do you think should he be, not just Jeb, but anybody else who's, who's a Republican politician? Should they be out there condemning this? A- absolutely they should. And the only reason they're not doing it is, is because of you know, social pressure, fear of being ostracized, fear of losing power, uh, you know, fear of losing access to power. Uh, look, the Republicans could have taken care of this already. Mm-hmm. You know, they, o- they only needed, what, a- 10 more senators, 7 more senators, whatever it was, to convict. Yeah. And we could have been done with Donald Trump for good. And-, and that wouldn't have meant that Republicans couldn't have had power. They could have already been turning to Ron DeSantis. But yet we're stuck here because they were all too cowardly to actually do anything about it and do what Cassidy Hutchinson did today. Personal power. Exactly. Personal power over the safety of individuals and democracy. Yeah. Let's plug your book one more time. <laughs> Tim Miller's new book is out today. It's called Why We Did It, a travelogue from the Republican Road to Hell. Thank you so much. Thanks, Good Jake. to have you here. The video that proves Russia is lying about the inhumane double strike on a crowded mall in Ukraine. That's ahead. Turning to our world lead, a critical summit today in Spain where NATO is expected to agree to massively increase its high readiness forces. President Biden and other NATO leaders are discussing scaling up the number of troops on high alert to 300,000. That would be a sevenfold increase and the largest troop enhancement since the end of the Cold War. This comes amid growing concerns that rising energy prices and waning interest in Russia's war against Ukraine could fracture NATO unity. CNN's chief White House correspondent, Caitlin Collins, is live for us in Madrid, Spain. Caitlin, what are NATO leaders saying about the next phase of this war in Ukraine? Well, Jake, two things that they really want to do, and one is beef up their military funding for Ukraine that is sending more weapons and assistance in that has been helping Ukraine since this invasion started, fend themselves off from these Russian forces. But the second is increasing their own military posture in Eastern Europe. And obviously, two of those things are things that President Putin of Russia does not want to see, especially the latter half. And that has really been a message that you've seen President Biden during these two summits, the G7 summit that he had in Germany, now here for this NATO summit in Madrid, Spain, has been pushing this message about how really what Putin was trying to do when he invaded Ukraine has backfired. Today, NATO is united and as united and galvanized as I believe it's ever been. And uh, we are ready to face the threats of Russian aggression because, quite frankly, there's no choice. And when we agreed we were going to respond, we acknowledged there was going to be some cost to our people. They were going to, our imposition of sanctions on, on Russia. But our people have stood together. They've stood up and they've stood strong. And Jake, there's just been another blow dealt to Russia today when Turkey dropped its blocking of Finland and Sweden joining the military alliance known as NATO. That is something that, of course, seemed a year ago unlikely to happen anytime soon. But you saw Finland and Sweden really try to fast track those applications after Russia invaded Ukraine because they became concerned about their own security. But when they had become in this application process, Turkey was the only member of NATO standing in the way of this. They said they had these objections. They wanted to speak to the other leaders about them. Obviously, it has to be a unanimous decision. And that had been a concern for the White House, though officials had said privately all along they thought eventually Turkey would drop their objections. They would allow Finland and Sweden to join NATO. And now they have done that. And Jake, that is a huge blow for Putin and a pretty big win for President Biden, who has been pushing for this and saying the enlargement of NATO is exactly the opposite of what President Putin wanted to see. Caitlin Collins in Madrid covering the NATO summit. Thanks so much. President Zelensky is calling a Russian airstrike on a shopping mall in central Ukraine, quote, one of the most defiant terrorist attacks in European history. Officials say at least 18 people were killed in the attack, with dozens more injured as emergency personnel continue to search for more victims. CNN's Phil Black takes a look at the devastation caused by the strike. 
pulling apart what remains of Kremenchuk's shopping mall is an effort to account for the dead. Officials say there are no survivors beneath the rubble, but it's likely there are more bodies. Mikola and Ludmilla made it out somehow. Their bodies battered, their minds traumatized by those moments after the missile hit. I saw lots of wounded people, burned people. Some were covered in blood, Mikola says. One girl fell down and we helped pull her along. She kept falling and losing consciousness. That's not possible, according to Russia's military. Its version, a precision strike, destroyed weapons and ammunition stored nearby in a road maintenance plant. Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, stuck to that story. As a result of the ammunition detonating, an empty shopping centre standing next to it caught fire, he says. This video, geolocated by CNN, proves the lie. The people in this park are seen reacting to the explosion at the shopping centre. They run, desperately trying to get further away or find cover. This man picks up a child and runs to a tree. Moments later... A second blast near the maintenance plant. This is the same explosion captured from different angles on the park security cameras. Its force knocks people to the ground and blows debris across a wide area. Ukrainian officials say that second missile destroyed no weapons or ammunition because none was stored at the plant. But the strikes on Kremenchuk have driven Russia's reputation further beyond redemption. Utter Barbarism. After countless atrocities through four months of war, Russia has again proven its capacity for destroying innocent lives and disgusting much of the world. Jake, we know too well that denials and lies are part of the Russian playbook in trying to explain away civilian deaths in this war. Now, a senior Russian official to the United Nations has described the images out of uh, Kremenchuk as being a Bucha-like provocation. Bucha, of course, is that area near Kiev where the Russians left behind hundreds of dead civilians but blamed the whole thing on Ukraine, said it was all a fake. But as with Bucha, so with Kremenchuk, world leaders, Western leaders are clear in their condemnation. This is, they say, yet another Russian war crime. Jack. Phil Black in Ukraine for us. Thank you so much. What will America look like in the coming months and years with Roe versus Wade overturned? CNN is going to visit a country where abortion has been banned for 30 years to get a preview of the future. In our health lead from physicians to resistance, that's the reality many abortion rights doctors face in Poland, where abortion has been restricted for nearly 30 years. And last year, Poland made its partial abortion ban even stricter by eliminating the exception for fetal abnormalities. CNN's Melissa Bell now takes a closer look at the laws in Poland and what that might tell us about what life might look like in some parts of the United States now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned. A grave in southern Poland that should serve as a warning, says Barbara Scrubble, that in trying to protect the unborn, Poland is now sacrificing the living. Barbara's sister-in-law, Isabella, desperately wanted a sibling for her nine-year-old daughter. But at 18 weeks, prenatal tests showed the fetus had severe abnormalities and would live no longer than a year. They went to the doctors and asked if Isabella's sister-in-law. They said no. Then, as she was looking to travel abroad, her waters broke. Abortions in Poland have been illegal for nearly 30 years, with just three exceptions. Cases involving rape or incest, those involving a woman's life being in danger or fetal abnormalities. That third exception, which had accounted for 98% of all known abortions, was struck down in 2020 by the country's highest court. There were massive protests, with polls showing just one in 10 people supported the move. There's also concern within the medical profession here in Warsaw. Abortions are now only possible in Poland in cases of rape, incest, or where the life and health of a woman is clearly in danger. And that is open to interpretation. 
It also places a great deal of power in the hands of doctors. And some are too scared now to help even those women who are in danger. I talk with my friends and they tell me, listen, I had this patient yesterday who should have an abortion due to legally allowed reasons, but I was afraid to give her information where she can get it because I was afraid that someone might consider this as a breach of law. The last Isabella Sabiok's mother heard from her was a series of texts she sent from hospital when her waters broke at 22 weeks. The doctors can't help as long as the fetus is alive, thanks to the anti-abortion law, worrying that her fever was rising and hoping that she wouldn't get sepsis because then she wrote, I won't leave this place. She died about 12 hours later. Thousands took to the streets under the banner, not a single woman more. Her family's attorney says she died of a heart attack on her way to surgery after the baby died, but an official cause of death has not been released. It is now part of a criminal investigation, say prosecutors. The hospital denies malpractice, saying in a statement, all medical decisions were made, taking into account the legal provisions and standards of conduct in force in Poland. The hospital also says the two doctors on duty at the time have been suspended. It's unclear why Isabella's doctors did not perform an abortion. In a response to questions from CNN about the Titan ban, the government said that the termination of a pregnancy remained legal in Poland where a woman's life is at risk. But Isabella's family believes her fetus's faint heartbeat prevented her doctors from acting in time. The two now share their final resting place beneath the gravestone that bears the slogan, not a single woman more. Jake, the lessons from Poland are twofold. First of all, that once in place, abortion bans tend not to loosen, but rather to harden over time. But also, and perhaps more importantly, that abortions continue. So the figures, of course, are hard to come by, but it is estimated, we've seen several from women's groups, but other organizations, that up to between something like 100 and 200,000 Polish women will every year either head abroad to have their abortions or underground. And that really tells you that abortion bans have many effects on society, on women in particular, none of which include actually ending abortions, Jake. Melissa mm. Bell, thank you so much. Horror inside a tractor trailer. Dozens of dead and dying migrants are found with no water. The upsetting details emerging about what happened. Stay with us. In our national lead, an absolutely horrific story. The Department of Homeland Security is currently investigating a deadly human smuggling incident in San Antonio, Texas. Fifty-one migrants died after being found in a semi-truck amid sweltering conditions last night. Those who survived are recovering in nearby hospitals. CNN's Rosa Flores is in San Antonio. Rosa, how were these migrants found and, and what are officials saying about this tragic discovery? Well, here's what we know from authorities. According to police and local officials here in San Antonio, there was an individual who was working nearby where this tractor trailer was and heard cries. This individual went to the tractor trailer, saw that some of the doors on the trailer were open, opened the tractor trailer and made the gruesome discovery. This individual found dozens of bodies inside, called authorities, and according to officials, the bodies were hot to the touch. They had no water, no air conditioning, and they were, of course, responding to this very, very gruesome scene. According to authorities, the death toll has increased to 51 today. Federal authorities are leading this investigation. Uh, HSI, Homeland Security Investigations, a portion of ICE is leading this investigation, calling it a smuggling, a smuggling event. According to federal authorities, at least three people have been taken into custody. And Jake, we should add that Representative Cuellar says that this truck went through a checkpoint in the Laredo sector, but it's unclear if these migrants entered that truck before or after that checkpoint. Rosa, do we have any idea of the nationalities uh, of these migrants? According to officials, most of them are from Mexico, Guatemala, and Honduras. Of the 51 individuals who have died, they're still trying to figure out the ages of these people. They know that 39 are men, 12 are women. But, Jake, just because of the number of individuals that we're talking about here, 51 that the medical examiner is having to take care of right now. They're asking neighboring medical examiner, um, examiners to help them out to figure out the, the ages of these individuals and exactly where they're from. 
Rosa Flores, San Antonio. Thank you so much. Sentenced. Jeffrey Epstein's longtime girlfriend learns her fate for recruiting underage girls for him to sexually abuse him and his clients. Stay with us. Convicted sex trafficker Ghislaine Maxwell is heading to federal prison for 20 years. Maxwell was sentenced today for sex trafficking underage girls for Jeffrey Epstein, her former boyfriend and longtime associate. Epstein died by suicide in prison. That's the official story anyway. A month after being indicted on federal sex trafficking charges in July 2019. Let's bring in CNN's Gene Casares. Gene, what happened at Ghislaine Maxwell's sentencing today? You know, it's so interesting because the U.S. Attorney's Office had asked for 30 to 55 years, which is a life sentence, right? She is 60 years old. But the judge during sentencing said, you've got the wrong sentencing guidelines. You've got the wrong year. So the judge determined the maximum was 19.5. Now, she added a little bit to that. But she also said that it has to be a significant sentence, that after conviction, she didn't see anything that showed acceptance of responsibility. She also said that she was looking at Maxwell and Maxwell actually spoke to the court saying that she felt terrible. I'm so sorry for the pain I've caused you. She was really speaking to the victims at that point. But it doesn't seem like the judge listened to that. But there were four victims that emotionally spoke before the court. They were speaking to the court, but the judge allowed them to look at Maxwell straight in the eye. She didn't look at them, though, as they were speaking, saying what had been done to their lives. Now, the judge is recommending Danbury. It'll be 20 years, two years she's already spent in there. She'll get credit. There'll be five years of supervised release once she gets out. But she is a convicted felon at this point. Gene, quickly, if you could, what about all these disgusting men that availed themselves of these poor young women. When did, when did they have accountability? We'll have to see what develops with the U.S. Attorney's Office, if anything. Well, I hope they get on it. Gene Casares, thank you so much. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcast. Be sure to tune in tonight. Anderson Cooper and I, starting at 8 p.m. Eastern, are going to provide some special coverage of today's hearing. Our coverage continues now with a guy I like to call Wolf Blitzer, and he's in a place I like to call the Situation Room right next door. I'll see you at 8 p.m. tonight. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.